Hey, fanboy nation. This is your pal Daffy Duck, and you're watching. You're watching. We're watching. You're watching. Fanboy. 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 A fanboy, etc. Fanboy nation. Dot. I assume Tom. You know, when I was a kid, half my classroom was running around screaming, Goonies never die, while the other half was screaming, the Wolfman's got nards. So this man technically owns, owes my third grade teacher an apology for that. Andre Gower, how are you today? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> uh, two things to that opener, Archie. One is I'm surprised that half of the class had seen Monster Squad when it came out, but I'll take that. And uh, two, you know, it's not my apology. I think that's a Shane Black thing. <laughs> right. But uh, you know what? I'll take it. I will carry the flag and the banner, or I will will march down and lead all those third graders and make them walk with me. (laughs) Well, the fact that, you know, uh, you were in a documentary called The Wolfman's Got Nards kind of plays into that whole thing as well. Well, yeah, you know, the doc is is actually my film. So it's, um, you know, when I was conceiving a documentary of what to you know, what to do with something, you know, cause it'd been experiencing kind of this monster squad resurgence for about, you know, 10 years at that time. And I ended up luckily getting a studio partner and, you know, developing this documentary and wanted to make sure that we told the fan story and the story of why this movie is still alive after 30 years of technically bombing at the box office, which should be death to, you know, any movie. And it usually is, but it's because those third graders uh, that were your classmates and because of, those third graders went home and, you know, you know, shared that VHS copy or shared that ripped off uh, VHS, you know, Max L tape from HBO the year after that and kept it alive for 30 years. And I thought the stories were fascinating of how, you know, this movie, The Monster Squad, that didn't do well in 87, uh, you know, lived on and lived on. And then about 19 years later had this huge resurgence because of one screening and it just lit a fire under the Monster Squad fans. Uh, you know, and us as the cast that happened to be involved in it and just kind of resurrected the title. Um, it, it wasn't dead in the hearts of the fans. It lived there, but it had no home to celebrate. And it just had this massive resurgence. And the stories to me were fascinating. And that's why I wanted to put a documentary together. And it's not about, it, it's not about us. It's not about the making of the movie. It's not a where are they now thing. Um, really what it is, is it, it's a story about the relationship that a movie has with these fans and that these fans have with this movie and how that affected their lives and impacted them as human beings. And it's fascinating. And um, I really enjoyed doing the documentary. You know, we had a great festival run um, year before last and we're working on, you know, getting it released, you know, here very soon. So I'd love to talk about that officially, but I can't, but Hey everybody, I know we've got a lot of monster squad fans and Wolfman's got Nars, the documentary fans uh, out there. Please stay tuned. Please follow me and listen for the announcements because it's coming very soon. <laughs> Which just means we get to do another interview with Andre about this at a later date. Thank you, RC. Yeah. I appreciate that. Not <laughs> not your first rodeo. <laughs> yeah. But it's uh, yeah, but yeah. I mean, I, I'd love to come back and talk about it when it releases. I want you to see it. I want all your all your followers and listeners to see it uh, because I think it's made for them, and they don't have to be Monster Squad fans to relate to this documentary. It's not solely about Monster Squad. It transcends 
that and explains why people can connect to something, whether it's, you know, a, a movie of any type or a, a, a song or a, or a TV show or everybody catches the feels of something that they connect to every time they watch it. Oh, absolutely. Like I just interviewed uh, Talia Schreier and her son, Robert Schwartzman, who are re-releasing Rad, uh, actually <laughs> releasing Rad for the first time on Blu-ray. And, you know, I, I had joked with them because they wanted to do an anniversary screening, unfortunately, because of everything that's going on in this world with the pandemic. We couldn't do it. Right. But I said, you know, when we finally can, I would love a Thunder in Your Heart sing-along because it was my cousin's favorite movie. And my yeah. co- nothing makes my cousin happy. And when I told him that Rad was coming out, he actually smiled. Ooh. Yeah. So well, I knew it that's... still had a big impact on him. It does. And really, and, and, you know, you catch whatever the movie it is, whether it's rad or whether it's monster squad or, you know, whether it's a horror movie or romantic comedy or something, it sticks with you. And, you know, that's what we really kind of looked into and it's really fascinating. And, you know, it's really kind of interesting, you know, for 30 years and 31, 32 years later about something like monster squad that people still want to talk about it with the same enthusiasm they did from when they first discovered it. And that's something unique. And I don't think a lot of human beings, let alone actors, you know, get a chance uh, to be a part of something like that. And so, you know, I always appreciated and respected the fact that it had this fan base, but I had no idea, you know, starting 12, 10, 12 years ago, that it was as big as it was, as loyal, rabid and fervent as it is, and just clamor, you know, for anything related to it. And they're they're very, they're very cool fans. And uh, they're a little different than a lot of other fans. You know, they're, they're just connected to the movie in some way deeper than I've kind of experienced with other kind of either, what do you want to call them, cult or nostalgic titles? Um, it, it's a very interesting fan base. I love them to death. Um, you know, I, I try to be as open and, 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 and gracious to them as I can um, because they're just very cool people. And, you know, I, I know a ton, I know thousands and thousands of them over the years and uh, it's very, it's a unique thing. So at least you got to appreciate that a little bit. Well, that's, that's a great thing for that. Something I've also noticed is that you cannot escape Frankenstein in any regard, because today we're talking about your newest movie, Baby Frankenstein, which when I saw the original poster, I was like, oh, man, this is going to be like some sort of terrifying horror movie. And it ended up having a bit of an E.T. feel to it. It does. You know, it's very interesting because I think, you know, a lot of times when you get a release, you get a poster uh, that someone else makes. or And, it, and it, it's a little misleading sometimes. Um yeah, and you know, I didn't really know what this uh you know, movie was gonna end up being. And I'm you know, I'm glad, you know, that John and, and, and those guys that actually made it uh, you know, have a chance for it to see the light of day because that's every filmmaker's, you know, kind of ultimate goal. Uh it was interesting to be associated with Baby Frankenstein because the story of it is, you know, it was shot in north northeast uh, Pennsylvania area, Scranton, Wilkesbury, things like that. And I had um, a good friend of mine, TJ Rotel and Denise Pantoja are a couple, and they were back up in Northeast Pennsylvania for a time because that's where he's from. And uh, he hooked up with this filmmaker that uh, they just kind of ran into each other, you know, small town, small town world. And he said, Hey, I've got this, uh, I've got the script or a story and I've, I've got some money and I want to make this movie. And they started talking movies and, and genre and, and people and, you know, my buddy TJ had mentioned that, you know, he's pals with me and I guess they got interested and <laughs> I got the phone call was like, hey, this group of guys is making this this movie up here and me and Denise are actually doing the production on it. We're 
we're actually going to make it happen for them. And, you know, would you want to be in it? And, you know, you get those requests a lot from people that you don't know, Um, you know, especially like super, and I am not poo-pooing low budget. I'm not poo-pooing independent films. I celebrate that stuff. You know, in fact, I had a show that celebrated short filmmakers on, you know, a Nerdist channel for, for two seasons, but I love filmmakers that, you know, accomplish something, get it made and get it out there because it's not the easiest thing to do. And like I said, you know, someone, you know, coming from my kind of world, you get those requests all the time. Usually it's not something that you can or that you would want to do just because of the setup or they, you know, they, they don't have any, you know, it's not about the money. It's about the setup. It's about the ability to get you there or something. And, but when it comes from a, someone, you know, that's a, that, that's a friend, you usually think about it a little bit differently. And I, you know, I asked him, I was like, look, is it, is it any good? And he's like, you know, the story's actually, uh, it's actually pretty fun. It's very interesting. It's, it's kind of a different take on things. Uh, and by the way, the, the, the baby Frankenstein's not really a Frankenstein. (laughs) It's sort of like this automaton that was made in the fifties that gets, you know, lost and now discovered. And it's a discovery thing. And, you know, like you said, it has ET feels, um, about being in your, you know, being in your neighborhood and, and going on an adventure and finding something that shouldn't be there and, uh, you know, just kind of discovering it. And I asked my buddy, uh, I said, Hey, if, if I do this, will it help you? And will it help the overall? And he was like, you know, absolutely. And so I said, you know what, let's figure out a way to make it work. And I'd only been through Scranton like one time on the road. I'd been there, you know, many times, you know, since. And so I got flown in and as I was flying there, like they, it was only a short planned production anyway, but as I was on my way there, they ran into some production kind of, you know, planning obstacles and they rewrote the script and tightened it down and cut the shooting days in half. And so it was really a tight schedule once I ended up getting there. And so there wasn't really a lot of time to absorb a lot of stuff. So we hit the ground running and shot this movie and like, they shot it like seven days. I think three or three and a half days, if that on the set, and they crammed a bunch in, which, you know, is a testament to, you know, new filmmaking and, uh, you know, new equipment. Like, you know, you can have three digital cameras running at one time, you know, to, you know, to catch coverage and all that. And, you know, that's what they were trying to, you know, put together. And, you know, I was just hoping, or, you know, you never know if someone's movie's ever going to see the light of day. And so I was sort of in and out and I was back, you know, back at home just a couple of days later. And, um, you know, never really saw anything. I know they festivaled it for a little bit. And then, you know, lo and behold, they get a release date, um, you know, putting it out and going on, on, on TVOD to start with and, you know, get a lot of requests because, um, you know, I'm associated with it and, you know, my name's on it and I hadn't seen it, you know. And so I asked the producer, I was like, can you send me a screener link? Because I don't know what John ended up putting together, <laughs> right. you know, because you never know. And I said, before I start, you know, if I end up doing any media about it, I, I'd like to see it. <laughs> so <laughs> I ended up, uh, I watched it, you know, uh, earlier last week. And um, and then I was like, you know, it's very interesting, you know, of all the, how hard it is to put a movie together, how hard it is to shoot one, how hard it is to post, you know, post-production something, and then how amazingly difficult it is to get someone, uh, you know, to actually release it or get it out into the world unless you're doing it yourself, which a lot of people do. And, you know, it's a, you've got to celebrate that on that, you know, that, that small scale indie filmmaking kind of, you know, vibe of, you know, someone like the director 
who wanted to put something together just to get a project done. And then my friends, TJ and Denise, who happened to be serendipitously in town at the same time and ran into each other with these guys and they had production experience and, you know, they worked their butts off, uh, you know, as two people that are actually also in the movie right? because, you know, they needed some actors and they're, you know, they're both talented performers as well. And, but behind the scenes of really putting together all the pre-production, the actual production and getting everything shot, getting, getting all the actors there and scheduling all that, that's really two people that put this whole production together. And those were two of my friends. And so it made it even more worthwhile to be a part of something like that. And then now celebrate that it finally comes out. And, you know, to see a bunch of people on Twitter now that it's out and seeing it or getting some media exposure about it and people actually liking it, that's always a good, you know, that's always a good, uh, a, a good, uh, a good feeling that you're associated with, you know, no matter what it is, you know, whether it's bumpy or disjointed or has an indie feel or whatever, that doesn't matter. I mean, everybody can, can watch something and criticize something. Right. But uh, if you're a smart film goer, you watch something. And you try to find something that you enjoy or things that pop out to you that were really good, uh, whether it's a piece of dialogue or whether it's a shot or a feeling or even a music cue, or if there's hints to nostalgia things that, you know, you relate to like old movies and, you know, you pull out the positives to movie and you're going to enjoy a movie if, if, if you're watching it. Um, and that's what I think people are starting to do with this because it's only been out for a few days, yeah. uh, you know, on the TVOD world. And, you know, now that we're all kind of, you know, staying at home, quote unquote, uh, you know, we need stuff like, like this to everybody, for everybody to enjoy and watch. So it's, it's interesting to be a part of something that is finding a release during an interesting time in the world and getting some attention. So it's, uh, uh, that's always something to celebrate. Well, to be truthful, I would have never guessed that it only took seven days to film, film this movie. I thought it was a minimum of 18 because I've seen the short, you know, the short indie shoots between, uh, 14 and, and 25 days. And I felt, you know, this might've been a little bit of a longer one in that regard. I would have never guessed it took an entire week to film this movie. I mean, that's yeah, a testament yeah. to the entire crew. You know, it is. And, you know, it was, a, it was a handful of, uh, you know, a skeleton crew, obviously, uh, you know, led by my two pals, TJ and Denise that cobbled it all together and got, you know, some, you know, camera crew and G and E crew and acting crew, you know, mostly out of the New York area. And they came down and put them up in, you know, NEPA for a while. And uh, and then I flew. I'm the only one that flew in long distance, I think. And everybody else was local. And, you know, just kind of jumped in and, you know, got their hands dirty and, uh, you know, tried to put together something together with local connections and local locations and, you know, f- you know, family locations, which is a great way to, you know, make a movie when you're on a budget. And, you know, it, it's a testament to everybody that had their hands in it you know, from the production coordination crew of my friends to, you know, the producers that actually were paying for this movie that had never made a movie before. And so you, you have, you know, on the day learning experiences about how to do something. And then John, the, you know, the filmmaker there, you know, is a film school guy and, you know, is a local guy and coming back home and trying to do something. So, you know, everybody that had a, had a role in it, you know, whenever you accomplish a goal, you've got to at least celebrate that a little bit for somebody. And, you know, like you said, seeing something that was made in seven days that, you know, if you had had 20 days to make this movie, it would have been a completely different movie. Right. You know, but it it may have not even been better, but you've just been completely different because you have more time. Um, you may be able to, you know, do more things on the day. But, you know, when you when you have a certain amount of hours a day and only a certain amount of days, really, to, to cram a whole feature-length kind of script, which, like I said, got whittled down as we were doing it, I believe. 
um, to, you know, to fit into what you have, you know, when you're working on a budget constraint, that's, that's, you know, sort of the fun thing to look at and, and, and kind of celebrate. A lot of people would lament that and, and criticize that during or after the fact, but, you know, you just gotta, you know, sometimes you just gotta put your nose down and do it. And look, that crew, I had it easy, honestly. Because, you know, this this was a great setup as someone that got flown in to do a local movie. I got to stay at my friend's parents' house in my <laughs> own room. I got, you know, his mom made me breakfast and lunch, which was amazing. And then I got driven to, like, where you know, whatever set we need to do. And sometimes you got to sit there all day and wait for your shot. But that's the actor's rule, right? And all these other people were just, you know, cramming in hours and working, like, 20-hour days for seven days and the, you know, the crew was staying in the, in the house that we actually shot, you know, a lot of the, the, the feature in and in the film, you know, they were just up all night and up early. And, you know, I really had the easiest thing to do because I had a few scenes, you know, to end, but I would jump in and, and try to get them done. But everybody else, including the other actors, you know, had a lot more to do and, you know, long days, early mornings, late nights for, you know, a full seven days. And, Boy, they crammed it in, you know, you know, when you look at that, you know, from a bird's eye view and, um, but, you know, I, there's nothing that I can complain about because I, I think I had it the easiest <laughs> of anybody. Uh, but uh, I, I had fun being around people that I'd never met. Um, you know, when you watch something like this movie and you got a lot of local talent, you got some that's coming in uh, and then local crew and, and crew that you're bringing in, you know, from, you know, the New York area, it's a it's a good mix. Yeah. And what you end up with is usually something that you can find, you know, it's certainly authentic, you know, it's certainly got an authentic, you know, neighborhood feel to it. And that's, you know, where all that kind of growing up nostalgia comes out and the storytelling and, you know, kind of the subject. I mean, the subject matters is it's not as off the charts as we've seen in other things, but what they ended up doing with it is you end up in that story right away. Like there's no, you know, whole first act exposition of, this other, you know, like tech company from the 50s that was making automatons and what they could do and having flashbacks. That's what you would do in a big budget movie. You know, when you're doing a, a mic, and this is a literal micro budget movie, you've got to jump right in the story and just let the and just let the audience roll with you. And, you know, it, it, it kind of works, right? It's, it's everybody just relates to someone in the movie. And, you know, when you got a lot of local talent uh, and, you know, talent from coming in and then you have someone like, uh, uh, Patrick McCartney, who plays Glenovich, uh, <laughs> is just, uh, you know, that, that guy, I, I'd never known that guy. I'd never worked with him before. And we ended up doing the, the first scene I believe I was on camera was with him, uh, in the pizza place. And, you know, we did, you know, a couple takes, a couple camera moves. And he was, you know, just his whole character's over the top, which he's supposed to be. And Patrick, as the actor, just kind of rolled with it. And was all over the place and just coming up with this just crazy stuff that was super funny, you yeah. know, in bits and pieces. And then as you see it kind of meld in overall when you watch the whole feature, this guy's just that he's that character. Right. And it was such a and so when I got there, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do as the you know heir to this kind of automaton you know tech company. Because uh, we had a lot more to do in the original script with my character, but it, you know it got, got trimmed a little bit, and so I just showed up, and all of a sudden I see this force of nature on the opposite side of the table, just going off the rails. But I knew he was doing it from somewhere that he 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 knew what he was doing. 
right? right? And uh, you just kind of got to let someone like that go. And then so I was just kind of just trying to be, you know, play literally opposite of that and just try to be as reserved and calm and steady as you can be because just let him go off because that's what that character is supposed to be doing. And then you've got someone like Giannis who's playing uh, his sidekick who's actually my favorite character in this whole, in this whole movie. Uh, Cause one, he was a great guy. He was a local guy, hadn't, hadn't acted before, but he has the, he's my favorite character. Wait, he's never acted before. No, the guy that played, uh, I think uh, Van, uh, Van Sneed. Like, yeah. But he's like, yeah, I mean, maybe he's just a local guy. Uh, he was a sweet guy had, and he looks phenomenal on camera. He's got this big bushy mustache and he just harkened back to like this 1930s or 40s kind of sidekick silent movie era character to me. And I, I, I loved it. I, That's I loved exactly it. what I was going to say about him because he had the best facial expressions, the body language, oh. like it was all there. Like I thought he was a seasoned actor. And it seems, I mean, he, I mean, I think he's done some stuff, but you know, like you can't search and find like, you know, like 50 movies behind his belt, which is what you were expecting. Right. right. Yeah. And he, he, he was a very nice guy, you know, got to hang, you know, we only got to hang out for a couple of days, but I thought it comes across with him balancing off of this kind of weird dynamic wannabe criminal duo <laughs> of these two characters. And one says way too much. And the other one says nothing. Yeah. It was it was very much Jay and Silent Bob, uh, you know, post middle age with prostate problems. That's right, and, and the physical and the physical attributes of each were completely opposite and switched. And you're right, that's that's a that's a great take on that. But uh, you know, and then even you know, like the you know the the kids that played the two leads, uh, you know, they were a little older than the roles, of course, but they came across as like really genuine and 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 natural. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even the mom and the neighbor, which is Mike, which is one of the producers, he comes across as, you know, the goofy next door neighbor and just, you know, just kind of nails it really for exactly what it's supposed to be. This isn't a, a huge, gigantic, you know, or even mid-range indie movie or a studio thing where there's a ton of posts and a ton of effects and a ton of all that. And then even when you have something like that, even kind of the performances get kind of polished and smoothed out and everything, uh, including, you know, because that happens with every big movie, because everything's got to be in this certain kind of parameter. But when you have these awesome kind of local and, you know, regional people that come in to, you know, you know, touch on something and just, you know, do what they can to make I think it fills in those gaps better and you get sort of that natural performance, uh, you know, of the, of, of the, of the goofy, uncomfortable neighbor who, you know, just, you know, might say the wrong thing and does at one time, but then comes through and, you know, it, there's, I think, I think everything ended up working, which is a testament to shooting for seven days and having a, you know, probably a gigantic amount of stuff and figuring out how to put it together where it kind of works. Is it bumpy in places? Does it jump for me? Absolutely, but so does so does real life, and so does the story that takes place in 24 hours on Halloween, you know, which is everybody's favorite time. And everybody connected and 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 figures it out. You know, unfortunately, there's a couple things that I knew were in the script that uh, I thought were my were going to be my favorite bits, and they didn't get to shoot them. Uh, but I thought they were they were genius little additives, and unfortunately, we don't get to see it. But you know, that happens in every movie. And uh, but I think the characters that are there carry everything. And, you know, if I can, you know, help out, you know, in, in that regard with any way, I hope I hold my own against, you know, all the, you know, all the guys that and, and, and gals that put in even more hours than I did. 
Uh, you know, so I hope we all balance it out and make something enjoyable for people to watch. Well, it's it's a fun film. Like it doesn't take itself overly seriously, but no. it's not hokey in 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 the least. So that's what makes it even better. You're right, and you know, you know, hokey is the opposite of genuine. And I think everything comes in with some, you know, that genuine kind of like I said, neighborhood Halloween day feel of being in a situation that no one can imagine being in. And then dealing with, you know, an, a, a crazy duo character, which, I mean, watching, I like I said, I only got to see those two perform with each other when I was opposite them, you know. And then, uh, you know, maybe when I was off, you know, off to the side of the set watching them work. But as I saw them together and on camera, I'm like, I, I almost want, uh, you know, a Glenovich and Van Sneed continuing story. Just these two guys going around and wreaking havoc. Into you know trying to be this bumbling criminal crew that never makes it. You know, I was like, there's characters there. That's amazing. Right. And then what's crazy is we forget about actual the 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 titular character <laughs> being you know this person you know uh, Rance Nix who had to be put in this you know two hours of makeup every day wearing a glass dome head with gears in it. And having to perform, you know, create some character that we've never seen before. So I think everything just works out to be, you know, as genuine as possible. And you forget that you're watching, you know, you just think you're kind of in the neighborhood with these folks, which I thought was kind of cool. Right. And that, that's what made it fun. And then, you know, Rance did a great job as the baby Frankenstein in the flick. And I feel bad for him that two hours of makeup for just seven days worth of work. But at least it wasn't six months in that costume. That's right, because you that's what you always hear about creature effects and, and monster makeup. It, it's so long to get in and out of that, and you've got to stay in it all day. And look, like I said, I had it fairly easy, uh, you know, compared to everybody else that was in every scene, especially Rance. Uh, you know, he's got to be in that all day and, you know, 15, 16, 17-hour days they were going, I believe, and it was just long. And, you know, so that's a testament to someone to, you know, to push through and, and, and you know, finish that out without getting too worn out. Because, uh, you know, I've I've done that side of it as well. You know, and then you have, you know, you hear horror stories of movie shoots with monster makeup and creature effects. And, you know, people are just, you know, it's just a nightmare. And uh, but I think everybody came together to just kind of be as creative and innovative as they can with the budget constraints and the time constraints they had to create a character no one has ever seen before. Um, you know, it's always interesting. He's called baby Frankenstein. Uh, I think that's a little unfair to the character. I mean, cause he's not really parted together. You know, it's just supposed to be sort of like this kind of, we never get to know what he is, right? which is interesting that if this actually gets a little bit more, you know, coverage and a little bit more attention, I would love to see the origin story of baby Frankenstein and going back to the fifties when he was created by this tech company. And, uh, you know, because now you've created something that you know nothing about and you want more. <laughs> we'll get a prequel and you get to play your own grandfather. You know what? I'm in. I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, it's a fun movie. You know, I'm not a big horror guy, but when it has a bit of a sci-fi element to it that just makes it fun and it puts it in a realistic setting and, like you said, genuine instead of hokey, it makes it enjoyable. And you sit there and for an hour and a half and you're having a good time. Uh, you know, absolutely. And it's just, uh, you know, a lot of things that people are starting to talk about more. A lot of people talk about it in the past, but now people are actually starting to take a stand on it and, and make a point of it. Most movies are too long. Mm -hmm. 
You know, that, that's a yeah. big deal because most filmmakers don't want to cut anything. They don't, they don't want to make it tighter. They've got to get the scene in. And most movies that are average or above average are probably 10 to 12 minutes too long. <laughs> but wow, you're, you're being movies, generous, man. I, I'm thinking some of them are like 40 minutes too long. <laughs> most of them are. You're, I'll let you say that. <laughs> but uh, I don't want to alienate anybody that would be like, oh, well, I was going to ask Andre Gower, but, you know, he's a jerk. <laughs> um, but uh, – it's uh, and and where you see a lot of that is in short films. And so, you know, I, I had a show on Nerdist Channel called Short Ends that uh, Ryan Lambert co-hosted with me. But I created the show to celebrate filmmakers that make shorts and try to launch careers or anthologies or feature projects. And I got so involved in all these shorts, and I realized that that's really where you learn how to cut your chaff. You know, and you know, most short films are way too long. That's even tougher to tighten of a short film. But when you can get a movie under 90 minutes or right at 90 minutes and it doesn't feel like two hours, then you've done something right. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think I think John probably could have crammed another 20 minutes of footage in here, but it wouldn't have made sense. Or, you know, there's always stuff on the cut. You know, there's no cutting room floor anymore. It's all just, you know, a, a trash can on a digital screen. But, um, you know, when you have – something that's tight and enjoyable. If you don't know what you're missing, you don't know what you're missing. And it's nice and easy and tight. Um, you know, case in point, you know, we started off the conversation with Monster Squad. That movie's 82 minutes long. Yeah. And it was an $11 million budget studio movie in 1987. It's only 82 minutes. Now, the problem with that is, is there needs to be about 10 to 12 extra minutes there of deleted to, to fill in some stories and some gap point, you know, some plot, you know, some plot gaps, and uh, some payoffs that are setups and setups that are payoffs that I always lament. But uh, yeah, it, it's about creating something that's enjoyable. Right now, we're looking for content that's in and out and enjoyable. You can talk about, you can tweet about it, you can text your friend and go, dude, you got to go watch this. And that's really what movies are about. And especially in, we're in this weird time in in in, in the country and, and you know in the world during a pandemic that we just don't really know you know, when or how or why we're going to get through this or how we're, how we're going to get through this. So you, you look for something to get through the day. And that's really what movies are really about. And you mentioned, like, you're not a big horror guy. Um, I, I'm a genre guy. I enjoy them. But I'm more of a sci-fi guy personally like you. And that's where I dug kind of the invention and the cutting-edge technology of whenever this, you know, automaton was made. And uh, I want to see more about, you know, more see about that. And if it was a horror movie, it probably would have missed a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think it, 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 it wasn't supposed to be a horror movie. It's supposed to be this campy romp in a neighborhood about something that this kid finds in his attic that we don't know what the hell that thing is and why it's there. And now why is it running around town and what is it? We don't care. We just get into this, you know, kind of little fun almost madcap 24-hour adventure that you can come in and out of and you're like, I, you know, I enjoyed that last 90 minutes, like you said. Yeah. And then we can pitch Mike now. We want to, we want the prequel of Baby Frankenstein to look like a total 1950s drive-in B-movie sci-fi flick. Yeah, I think you've nailed it because those are super enjoyable, right? Yeah. And, you know, if, if, I, if I was growing up and had a choice of, you know, like a horror movie from the seventies or like a 50 sci-fi black and white. Uh, I, I would, I would click over to the sci-fi black and white because those are world builds. Yeah. 
right? Look, horror movie, you know, those are rolled those too, but those are more psychological and those are more internally kind of supposed to frighten you as an individual. Um, the the sci-fi world is all about creativity and innovation and you know I'm a futurist type of guy and you know Tomorrowland was always my favorite land at, at a Disney park you know so uh, th- that intrigues me and that's uh, so what you're saying is we 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 need the prequel that looks sort of like um, uh, the Shape of Water meets um, anything. From the '50s black and white B movie, right? Let's do that. You know, something that'll end up on the Comet Network at some point, where they show the old 1950s uh, sci-fi flicks. That's right. That's yeah. right. And uh, but you know, when you when you talk about because I think you and I could probably talk about sci-fi stuff from the '50s for five days, probably. But um, you know, those are world builds, just like horror genre has to build a world and a monster and a world that that monster lives in, or a villain or an evil spirit. Uh, most of that's internal, but like sci-fi stuff is literally building other worlds. And that's when you saw a lot of awesome creativity and, and, and innovation and technology and, you know, technology that didn't exist, but some screenwriter said, oh, there's this machine that can do this for you. And what's funny is when you go back to those old sci-fi movies, these people were writing in a script about a technology or a computer console that you now have in the palm of your hand. Right. And that's something I get to ask, you know, when I interview anybody from any of these Star Trek franchises, I was like, what is it, you know, say Deep Space Nine or whatever. And I said, you know, 25 years ago, what you're doing with science fiction that's become science fact, which gadget seems to have impressed you the most or, you know, you were most surprised to see come to life. Yeah. And what's the what what's your favorite answer to that question from them? You know, everyone's got a different answer, but it's basically like, you know, tablets and cell phones and how easy it is to video chat now and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and and that, but that's what's great about movies because that's where, you know, it's kind of where that innovation comes from and and the creativity of someone's mind. Uh, you know, whether it's writing about, you know, a local kid in Northeast Pennsylvania that finds a, an automaton in his attic or someone's building an entire futuristic Earth-based world that goes into, you know, the, you know, the galaxy um, and, and meets other worlds. It's it's sort of the same thing. And it all connects everybody because it all comes back to you just being in your neighborhood as, you know, a, a meat puppet and uh, walking around on Earth. But you always, you know, you always have that kind of fantasy and that dream of, you know, other cool stuff that, you know, is out there. And think even like Baby Frankenstein can tap into that. Well, it also tapped into acceptance. No one treated, you know, or any of the main characters that wasn't the villain, like, like Patrick's character, as an, you know, as an autonomous creature. It's like, oh, he's cute. Let's talk to him. Let's play with him because he seems, you know, a bit childish in a sense. You know, no one was terrified of him or like, that's the other. We have to worry about the other. Right. It was a little scary to Mike's character, the neighbor, John, but, you know, just because he's kind of a he's sort of like a Freddy cat type of guy, but loves Halloween anyway. So I thought that was kind of endearing. But, yeah, I mean, you know, when you look at it, it really can be a social commentary story as well, um, which I usually avoid trying to you know come off that right off the bat but you could always find parallels because that's what movies and stories have always done they've always been commentaries about something and then you know the true good stories transcend whatever era they were made in and like you said like we have this new the other this weird thing and the kids take to it right away 
by saying, oh, he's very cool. Like, there's nothing wrong. Let's be his friend. Right. Which most kids would do until they learn to not like other or weird things. Like probably Glenovich, you know, grew up being told not to like other things. And he's sort of a, you know, sort of that base lobby type of guy who's kind of selfish. And he's after the reward, but he's also scared of this thing. And, you know, that's always the story we see in, in, in films like this where, you know, the, the bad guy or the villain. I don't even see him as a bad guy. He's just a bumbling kind of wannabe villain. That's what I like about it. Uh, that's never, ever going to succeed. Um, but who knows what this automaton could do? I mean, he literally may be a supercomputer walking around or can, you know, that's what, you know, it, it, there's a line at the end that my character says, it's like, you know, he got invented to help mankind. So, you know, is this a, this is a, this is an Asimov story? You know, this is an iRobot? You know, like, you know, we wanted to invent automatons and robots to help mankind or, you know, help in, 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 in hard, you know, in hard times or labor or just, you know, being around and enhancing the human condition. But then everybody would want to take advantage of that and, and it gets corrupted. And so I think we kind of see that even in simple stories like Baby Frankenstein, but you can also walk out your front door and see that happening everywhere. Right. <laughs> you know, something always gets corrupted or always wants to get to take advantage of. And, you know, that's sort of how the story ends. It's, it's a little clipped and it's a little, it's, it's a little short uh, at the very end. But, you know, the Lundquist character, my guy, is like, hey, he was an inventor for this and he should come with me, but maybe we should start thinking about what's right for him. Right. <laughs> Whose names end up being Jeffrey, by the way, which is funny. And because um, that's just comical. And, um, you know, let's build an automaton in the 50s and name him Jeffrey. Um, what I want to see is if there's like a Carl and a Douglas and a Donald and a Trevor hiding in some attic or in some warehouse somewhere that no one's seen in, you know, 75 years. And I think that's the sequel. There's a prequel and then there's a sequel. Who knows? <laughs> this could be a whole trilogy here. Um, and then Rand can play every single one of them. Oh, we've got the digital technology, right? <laughs> yeah. We can do that. Um, we, we've seen it left and right, but you know, and that's where that sci-fi, you know, kind of, you know, bend comes in. So, uh, but you know, even something that if nothing ever happens with the, you know, the story or these characters, you at least have that kernel of something that has created conversations that you and I have just started talking about and we're envisioning other worlds and other, other storylines. And look, that's really what movies are about. And that's what stories are. That's why we read shorts and, and 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 books and and novels and novellas and comic books because we want to extend our own imagination into something that we enjoy and i think something like this captures it really i mean it really ended up capturing something like that even as simple as it was done and as simple as it ends up being but that's what works sometimes and it worked for this film and especially with the seven-day shoot that's even more impressive than, than i would have expected yeah, and I mean, and they they may have had to go back. I don't think they did a lot of pickups or a lot of stuff. There just wasn't the time. But um, you know, it, as far as I know, that's, you know, uh, you know, that's what they shot it, you know, under. And that's a testament to like, you know, the you know the coordination of the production and you know the boots on the ground types like TJ and Denise, and then you know John trying to make something together and you know the you know the brothers that produced it and you know really you know you know learning on the fly and and what to do and. Uh, you know, just kind of all coming together, whether, you know, you had arguments or not arguments or you had bad days or good days. It didn't matter. You came together, you crammed it all in and, and you tried to accomplish something. And then, you know, it takes a while, you know, when you're working solo 
you know, someone like John uh, as the filmmaker and then, you know, having limited access and limited resources and, and trying to do something, you know, even on your own, I, you know, I hope, you know, it kind of feels, you know, like a, a decent accomplishment for him because as a filmmaker myself and, you know, has produced and directed, you know, multiple things. Um, look, making a movie is not rocket science. Actually getting it done, shot and out is the hard part. You know, the, the process of it is not that hard. It's very technical and logical. Uh, and it's all about scheduling and coordination and budgeting. But to the hard part is when you get someone interested you got to create something in you that's worthwhile watching or reading. And then you've got to, you know, you can't do anything with barely, you know, with, with no money, you've got to have something. And then that's difficult hurdle number one. And then you actually got to shoot it and you've got to put mics on it. You've got to have people walking from this point to that point in front of a camera that's rolling. And then you've got to put it together in post and make some sense out of all the garbage that you just smashed together. And that's what everybody goes through. And you're like, I can't, this is nothing's ever going to make sense. And then you do, and then you haven't. And that's where a lot of people stop, right. uh, if, even if they get that far. But then, you know, to, you know, to run into, you know, timing or, you know, getting into film festivals and, and, and showing it to other people, that's what everybody's goal is. And, you know, then you get an actual release out into the world, whether it's digital or not, who cares? There are no movie theaters right now anyway. Right. Um, you know, I think, baby, I think people would enjoy Baby Frankenstein at the drive-in because now talk about a nostalgic <laughs> feel. Uh, we're bringing back the drive-in, which was a dead media, you know, for dec, you know, for two decades now by far, except for oh, the yeah. pop-up here and there, or some old, you know, mountaintop, you know, drive-in and you know wherever. But now they're coming back because it's the only place we can watch movies right now. Yeah. And uh, isn't Ontario one of the only places that still has a drive-in in Southern California at this point? I, I believe it is, yeah. and I know there's one way down in. Um, Oh, uh, south of Fontana, but yeah, there's that could, there's an I think there's two that are active. Uh, the, all the old properties are some still around, and some of the screens are still up. But like there's a there's a strip mall in the middle of the parking lot, you know, where it was supposed to be. Um, but I even love like the out in the middle of the country ones. Those are my favorite ones. You know, where there's just all of a sudden off of off the county two lane, you turn into someone's you know pasture land, and they put up two movie screens. And, and painted a bunch of plywood white. And now those are coming back. And I know there's one in like Bristol, Tennessee, and there's some in Pennsylvania, and there's some in Michigan and upstate New York and Mahoning and things like that, where, you know, you get these awesome visuals of people coming. That's the new community meet spot now, because you can't hang out with each other, but you can hang out in your own car with your family. And what's interesting is I've always loved the drive-in movie theater. I used to go to the drive-in with my dad when I was a kid, even in L.A., because there was one in the Valley. Right. And there was there was the Winnetka 4 drive-in right there where, uh, you know, it's next to the Northridge Mall. And I, I saw a ton of movies there. And my dad's old brown Ford four-door, you know, that thing was a big boat. And, you know, that's when you hooked up the box of the speaker to your window, and then they ran it through your radio system, which was brand new, amazing technology. <laughs> but, uh, you know, now they're resurgent. And I love the drive-in so much that we're, you know, now that we're talking about that, um, you know, I have a mass comm, you know, I have a mass comm slash journalism degree, you know, from University of North Carolina in Asheville. And I had to write my senior paper on a piece of media technology that, you know, shaped or changed the world. And in like the 15 years that, you know, that professor and department head had been, 
you know, the signing that paper, no one had ever chosen the drive-in movie theater until I did. And uh, that was a, 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 a great experience, but there's no reference material on the drive-in movie theater. <laughs> right. And you know, it was funny. So I had to research and learn more about the history of the drive-in and, and, it, and its birth and its death. And honestly, the only book that was around at that time that I referenced like 85 times in this paper in college was one by Joe Bob Briggs <laughs> about <laughs> the drive-in movie theater. And I lost a whole letter grade on this paper because I didn't have enough citable sources. And I was like, that's not my fault. Right. Uh, it, it's because I was in college pre-internet, right. which means I'm, which means I'm old. And, uh, but let's I, I be honest, I Joe Bob is his own source. Like you don't need anybody else once you got Joe Bob as your source. <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> and what was awesome is I got to, uh, it was, uh, uh, three years ago. Yeah. Three years ago. Uh, Ryan Lambert and I had a podcast, uh, you know, for about a year or so, and we called it Squadcast, obviously. And um, we got to go to the Chattanooga Film Festival and do a, do a couple episodes. We did a live one in a theater with an audience. Um, we had like Joe Lynch and Adam Green and Graham Skipper and things like that, and Matt Mercer, because uh, we were talking about their movie that premiered. But we got to podcast interview with Joe Bob um, for an afternoon in the hotel because he was at the same festival. And I had never met the man before, but obviously everybody knows Joe Bob. Uh, I know a little bit more about his history and you know, where he came from because I had to read his book to do that paper <laughs> in college. But I started off the podcast by saying, Joe, Joe Bob, you know, I appreciate you sitting down, but I've got it on a personal note. I've got to say thank you for uh, helping me graduate my senior year of college because this was a major paper and you were the only book I could use as a reference. <laughs> I lost a whole letter grade, but at least I got a B on it and I passed. Uh, but only because of your book is the only one available. <laughs> so thank you, Mr. Briggs. <laughs> oh, man. And I can only imagine Joe Bob being, uh, you know, telling you that, uh, what's it called? You deserve to lose a whole letter grade because he's your only source. I, you know what? I, he probably did. I have to go back and, art, and listen to that archived episode, but he probably did. But, you know, he's super cool. He's super knowledgeable, super funny guy. You know, he started out as a, com you know, he's a comedy writer type yeah. guy. And he's very knowledgeable and, um, you know, now he's got his thing on Shutter, which, you know, everybody's enjoying in, in the genre land. Um, I'd like to see Joe Bob redo, uh, do his show that he's doing on Shutter, but do it about sci-fi drive-in stuff, because that's obviously the first thing I thought of, you know, when Shutter started doing, uh, you know, the Joe Bob show again. Right. Uh, and everybody loses their mind every Friday that it comes on. It's a, it's a great win for Shutter. Yeah. And I want to see that, but I want to go back to, drive-in movie theaters with Joe Bob, or maybe it's drive-in movies with Andre. I'll do that show. I'll co-host if you need one. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love it. Uh, you know, it's, uh, and, and I think we, you know, I, th I think we need that at the time. So I've been, I've actually been thinking about that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if this, you know, we got summertime, you can't get in movie theaters. People want to see movies on a big screen. You can watch it in your car. I hope all these drive-ins pop up and last even after the pandemic, because it's just, it's, you know, you know, it, it's a lot of. I'm not trying to get into like Americana, rah rah rah, but the drive-in movie theater is very Americana. Oh yeah, and it's a very cultural type of thing. It started off as the family outing, and then it started off as you know where you can go on a date, and then you know you have you have great, awesome period movies that show the drive-in as a as a major, you know, cultural thing. And what's interesting is that's getting a resurgence. It's becoming a cultural thing by necessity, not just 
you know, of grandeur anymore. Right. And, um, you know, there's great drive-in movie theater scenes in a lot, in a lot of, in a lot of movies. And then the cool thing about that is, is that now it can create a resurgence of, you know, car culture again. I mean, there's still, you know, the car clubs and, and certain things going on, but, you know, the whole rat rod thing will become more mainstream again, possibly, because that was a big part of going to the drive-in was people showing off their cars. I, I, it certainly is. The only problem is you can't go around and hang out around a 57 Chevy and talk about it. You got to stand six feet away. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, uh, you know, my, my favorite neighborhood, you know, in LA is the, the Toluca Lake area. And right there is the original Bob's big boy. And every Friday night, they have a car club night. So it's like, the, it's just like nothing's changed in 60 years. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, people bring all sorts of cars, whether they're, you know, a, a 1962 Corvette, or if it's a, a 2002 Corvette, you know, and it's all these awesome custom mades and hot rods and rat rods and street racers. And it's really neat to go and just kind of hang out and watch that. Uh, and like you said, that'd be awesome to start that off at the drive-in. Uh, I had a friend of mine who I did what you would consider one of these, I did a, uh, an anthology piece, um, uh, for like a four or five part vignette thing out of North Carolina with a buddy of mine named Adam Hewlin. And I met him and he had actually owned a, 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 a drive-in in Texas and it ended up going out because like no one was going to drive-ins anymore. I was like, man, you have got to kick that back in. And, right. you know, he's back and I was like, someone that has some land, let's just make a drive-in and, and do, and like, I'll, look, I'll host the show. I'll mm. do it every Friday night. But you know, let's make it a you know let's let's make it a, a reality. I'm getting ready to pitch a reality <laughs> show about going to the drive-in in 2020. I dig it, man. You know, let's do it. Like, yeah. we'll invite you guys cover it. We'll hang out, and uh, you know, I don't know. Let let me know if anybody would watch that kind of show. You know, it's not a reality show, but it's a show about everybody coming back to the drive-in uh, because we have to. <laughs> right. Well, I dig it, man. And okay, so I have to bring up Ryan Lambert because you've mentioned him a couple of times. Sure. Uh, having grown up with him, you know, on set and remained friends over the years, did you guys ever get on his case about Kids Incorporated? Oh, we all, you know, what's what's better than Kids Inc.? Of course, of course. <laughs> Um, you know, you know, Ryan, it just as I would, you know, you know, we grew, we were, we grew up together in that time of teen magazines and teen celebrity culture, which was obviously, you know, 10 or 15 years pre-internet and social media. And, you know, it, it's, it's about as corny and as embarrassing sometimes as it can be, but you know what, it is what it is, but Kids Inc. ended up being more of a kind of you know, was it campy and rompy and, and Saturday morning cheese? Absolutely. But those kids took it seriously. They were all actual performing musicians and talented people. Just because they were lip syncing cover songs doesn't mean they didn't actually record those vocals prior. Right. And I don't think a lot of people realize that, but that show, um, to answer your question, yes, I'll clown <laughs> Ryan about uh, kids and Cape because he can because you're buddies. Right. Um, the, uh, but you know, he celebrates it too. And he enjoyed doing that show because Ryan's a musician, he, you know, he wanted to be a rock star and he ended up going into being bands and, you know, for the next 20 years and was, you know, he was in punk bands and, and, and kind of, you know, uh, you know, dark rock bands out of San Francisco for years. And he's a talented musician and he can sing his ass off. And, um, 
and he's influenced by, I mean, his music knowledge is gigantic, and which you wouldn't think of someone, you know, oh, someone did a corny Saturday morning music show. He doesn't know anything about music. And you'd be wrong for every single one of those performers on that show. Right, because Manteca came out of there. She had a bunch of hits. Fergie came out of there, uh, you know, prior to being with – What's it called? With Black Eyed Peas, she was with Wild Orchid right. with two other cast members on there. So there was a lot of talented people that came on there. It was Absolutely. just like a, you know, Mickey Mouse Club for network. It was, and even you know, don't don't forget um, Rashawn Patterson, who uh, was he still is a touring performer uh, in the gospel world. Like he's this amazing producer and performer, and still has a huge following because they're all talented kids. Right. And what's interesting about that show. Um, Ryan actually replaced the original lead of that show, whose name was Jerry Shirell, who was on for a season or two. But the original castmates of that show or cast members of that show all came out of this Sunday afternoon showcase that was done at the Roxy on Sunset Boulevard. And this I used to go because I was friends with everybody when we were, you know, super young. And it was one of my favorite things to do every weekend was go see these kids perform concerts and their stand up and their solo musicians and their group acts. And it was all kids and teenagers. And they were so talented and so good. And we were all friends because we all grew up together. And it used to be called... um, uh, too short for primetime players, I believe, was the was the showcase show, and it had everything from hard rock musicians and great drummers like Jimmy Keegan came out. Of it. Josh Freeze, the famous rock drummer, came out of that. Um, uh, Marta Marrero, who became Martika, you know, was a huge pop hit, you know, for a couple albums. Um, and, and you know, people like Jerry and Ryan and Renee and Rasan, they all got Kids Incorporated out of that show. Right. And then Ryan, you know, came on and joined the cast and, you know, took it to, a, you know, a cool level and he got famous for that. But it's a great show. Like, it's campy and corny, but you have to look at the actual mu- musical acumen and, and, and the performances of these kids uh, because they were actually really good performers. And Ryan was one of them. But, yes, I get to make fun of Ryan and his sequin or sparkly jacket every once in a while. <laughs> uh, but you know what? You know, turn about fair play because he'll turn around and clown me on something, too. But, uh, you know, why not? Right. <laughs> Those of us that grew up in the 80s, we know all about camp, but we had fun doing it when we were kids, so we were all right. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. (laughs) And now I think everybody's almost like clamoring for it because everything's so serious and dark. And, you know, that's why you can have kind of some awesome sitcoms nowadays that kind of go back to that a little bit, but maybe in a smarter, innovative way. And then you get to, you know, watch just fun, campy movies that if they're done smartly, camp is genius. You know, when, when camp is done, there's two different ways to do camp seriously, right? A camp for comedy and then camp for serious. And all you have to do is watch, you know, a hand of Verhoeven films and see camp for serious. Right. And, you know, you can clown, you know, two of my favorite movies of all time. But when you realize that all of that's done over the top and on purpose with skill, uh, an intellect like Starship Troopers and Showgirls, <laughs> you know, uh, everybody thinks those are just campy, corny, really poor movies, and they're watching them from the wrong lens because right. they're absolutely genius with what they're doing. <laughs> well, one of my buddies from high school was in Starship Troopers as an extra, and, <laughs> and he was sitting behind Denise Richards in the classroom scene, and our running okay. joke was, 
is that that's the that's the hardest he's ever studied in his life was, was that scene because he never cracked the book open. So we, you know, it was the best acting he's ever done. <laughs> I am so jealous of your buddy that was an extra in Starship Trooper. I would have loved to have been an extra in Starship Troopers. Yeah. Um, it, it's, if it's on, I got to watch it, you know, and, you know, there's a tie-in because uh, uh, I love watching the creature effects and everything because it's, it's a blend of digital and practical and a lot of the practical creature make, you know, for that. And later on where, you know, Tom Woodruff Jr. had a hand in there who was in Monster Squad, the guy in the Gilman suit, but also a young makeup artist at Stan Winston Studio who created the Frankenstein applications, uh, who has a fascinating career story. And uh, being a part of Monster Squad was really one of his first endeavors, and it was the first time that he had gotten into the creature suit, uh, which launched a career of being a creature performer for decades. And, um, you know, so that's, that's one of the things we touch on in the documentary uh, is, you know, how this movie, you know, impacted anybody that had anything to do with it. And um, it, it's, you know, the, I, I love practical effects. I love practical creature effects. You know, we're seeing a resurgence and 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 a circling back to that now, especially in genre and even sci-fi stuff. You know, not everything, you know, green screen and digital and, you know, laser swords that aren't there. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, and that's, it all comes back from that, uh, you know, that, that skilled craftsman or performer and, you know, we, we, we're going back to the, to the things that work and people really enjoy and connect with. And I, I think it's, you know, unfortunately, you know, this pandemic has shut down a lot of production for a while. Hopefully that comes back. It, it'll be different for a while, but I know there was a lot of awesome stuff, you know, for in sci-fi world, in uh, creature features and in the horror genre and, you know, coming, you know, coming down the pipe. Uh, and, and I hopefully we get to see them, you know, not, as delayed as, 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 as we hope they are, because there's a lot of great people out there doing cool stuff and uh, technology is awesome, but it, it, it can also be a crutch. Yeah. Technology should be your, you should be your supplement to make something look amazing. And if it starts off with, you know, genuine, authentic or, you know, practical effects and then digitally enhance it to make everything look great or just support it, then I think you've got some good stuff. I got you, man. Makes sense. And, What's it called? You know, one good thing about the pandemic is the VOD market because it helps movies like Baby Frankenstein and a bunch of other movies that are coming out. I mean, look what it did for Trolls World Tour. I mean, exactly. And, you know, you're talking, you know, I know, you know, we've got to circle back and we'll talk about Wolfman's Got Nards when it actually <laughs> releases, hopefully, if you want to. Oh, uh, of course. I want you to get a chance to see it. But, uh, you know, that's coming out in a time, you know, it's probably going to be a couple months from now. But, are we going to still be in this, you know, kind of VOD COVID world uh, or are we going to, you know, be back out in the world? I think we're still going to be sort of in this world in October and, and Halloween when we want all this stuff that we connect to that we love is is going to be a little bit different this year. So, you know, hopefully it sticks around. Um, you know, we had a great festival run with the doc um, and I even did a I did a 22 city Alamo draft house tour because I brought the doc back to the Alamos, which is where we shot a lot of the tour that we did three years, two years prior. Uh, and so I had a 22 theater theatrical run with the doc already. I did that last October. Um, I'd love for it to go in theaters, but there are no theaters right, <laughs> right now. Uh, you know, they're just empty husks, you know, of like some sci-fi, you know, pod snatcher, people snatcher pod movie. That's right. what they are. But, uh, you know, maybe it goes to a drive-in. Maybe we get to watch it there as, you know, a, a, a Saturday, you know, evening matinee feature. Uh, I'd love that. Um, 
and you know VOD you know is really where films can find a wide 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 audience because yes it's about the algorithm that people can see you but if you market it and, and word of mouth and this is where film fans film fanatics um you know genre lovers sci-fi lovers uh media you know media types like yourself you know get the word out on these films and you have a place to find them and it's amazing because you can log into one of about 411 platforms and rent or digitally download a movie that you wouldn't have access to in a, you know in 20 years ago right and that's a great thing for filmmaking it's a great thing for content uh you know yes watching a film shot wide in a theater with a group in a communal experience is the preferred thing yeah. but not every movie would get that opportunity anyway, but it still needs to be enjoyed and seen and passed around the neighborhood. Now it's just a digital neighborhood. Right. Instead of you going around and passing out something you recorded off HBO with, you know, a piece of masking tape on it, you know, that says, <laughs> you know, you know, the Goonies or Monster Squad or the Explorers or Red Dawn or something, right. you know, it, it's now like, hey, man, you text your buddy or you tweet something out. It's like, hey, I just found this on iTunes or on Amazon rent. Like, you guys got to watch this. Right. Now and then Voodoo and all the other ones let you share your, your video playlists with your friends. That's yeah, right. So it's just the neighborhood is now just a lot bigger and it's right. digital and it's still a neighborhood experience. It's just done digitally. Right. So right. it's a, it's a really good, uh, it, it, I, I think that helps. I think that's good for films where a lot of people will poo poo the fact that everything goes to streamers or VOD. And look, should I think you watch an entire feature on your iPhone 10? Probably not. Right. Um, you know, we've got Quibi for that, but, you know, you can sit at home and watch, um, a lot of stuff. Everybody's got a big giant TV with great sound now, and you can sit and enjoy a movie if it's by yourself, but now you can live stream a movie with your pals right. and your, you know, internet community, and you can comment while it's going or live tweet it. Uh, everybody can watch a communal, you know, you can log into zoom while everybody's watching the same thing. Everybody's getting very innovative of how to, fight against being isolated uh, in the current you know, time. But then I think that's going to all of the innovation that everybody's finding to deal with isolation right now or being disconnected, they're finding a way to connect that I think will also transcend once we're through this. Mm-hmm. And that's just going to help in the long run. I think that's a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking forward to stuff like that. I mean, I enjoy watching the movies at home on VOD personally because – you know, you have the guy that's sitting there and playing with his phone the whole time. Like, I'll give you an example. I, I was at a film festival. Uh, this was three years ago. And it wasn't a movie worth remembering, let alone finishing. <laughs> and I don't I don't like to dump on somebody's efforts, you know, because, it's a, like you said, it takes a lot of hard work to put a movie together. But this one was just bad. And, and so the guy in front of me decides to start playing Candy Crush in the middle of the film. Uh and I lean in. I said, look, pal, I know the movie's bad, and I don't blame you because your wife's not going to get up and leave. But can you at least turn the brightness off on the phone? It doesn't need to be full bright in the middle of the theater. Oh, awful. And so that's the stuff that irritates me about the movie-going experience these days. It does. And I think that's just sort of a disconnect because people have been separating from a community feel for 20 years or so because of technology. Uh, and they don't realize that going to the movie, you're not an individual at a movie theater. That, you're not the only one in that room. You are an individual in a communal experience. And, it, you know, the 
the getting scared with everybody else and feeling that adrenaline rush or, you know, when a catchphrase comes or, you know, when the bad guy gets his comeuppance or, you know, the bad guy mothership blows up or, you know, the bad alien ship blows up and everybody cheers, that's not as distracting because it's noise because it's part of the experience. But yeah, the guy on the phone or, you know, the, the, the person, my favorite thing was, I can't remember, my wife and I, honestly, one of the last times we've been in a movie theater together years ago, it was right to the kind of emotional kind of climactic uh, pinnacle of the, of the, of the like second act. And the guy next to us opened up a bag of M&Ms and he opened it too far and they were peanut because they were loud and they rolled everywhere and just clamored. I'm like, Oh, this is the time you choose to do that. <laughs> um, or, you know, just, I never stood like red vines are a movie staple. Why are they wrapped in cellophane? That's the noisiest thing in a dark room. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I used to get mad at that. That's why um, the only, you know, my favorite, you know, theaters are Alamo Drafthouse because you can't do that. Right. You can't be on your phone. You will be asked to leave. And uh, you used to not get a warning. Now you get one warning uh, and then you're booted and uh, they enforce it. And that's why everybody loves going to the Alamos. Uh, I hope that the Alamo you know, theaters around the country and the world open back up soon. I think people need that communal movie experience. Uh, it's a personal thing to me because I'm so kind of connected with all the Alamos uh, that have, you know, you know, grown over the years. And I know a lot of the creative managers at each location and they all don't have jobs right now. Yeah. Uh, not, not only do I feel for the moviegoers that can't go see a great movie in a great movie theater uh, and get some great food and some good beer at the same time, but uh, you know, th these people, everybody, the projectionists, the uh the wait staff and especially all my friends that are you know the commute uh, the creative managers no nobody's working right now you know the, they have no jobs and you know i lament for all my alamo folks because i've grown to know them and, and and become very tight with some of them over the last 10 years and i think that's what's really the tragedy here yeah. i mean uh you know it, it that's a microcosm of the overall kind of national you know thing we're facing and economies and job losses but that's something that where i connect and it hits me personally um you know i want everybody to go back to work and everybody to be back but uh, you know we're talking about movies and you know it affects everything and yeah. i think the movies are something that uh you know people escape to especially in times of you know uh you know dark times or you know strife or or hard to deal with issues. And, you know, that's why you're saying it's, it's great to see something VOD or streaming uh, because you can uh, still escape into another world, uh, but you can all, you have to get your job done. So that's a great thing for you. You got to watch all this stuff, you know, yeah. constantly and you get to see more stuff than most human beings, which is, you know, <laughs> we're all jealous of, but um, you know, that that's, what's great about technology. I do want theaters to open back up and uh, people go experience that communal thing because you know, ironically, Wolfman's Got Nards, the document is, you can watch it on your laptop or you can watch it on your, on your big screen on your wall and, and it still plays and it's great. But we made that movie, you know, my, uh, my kind of uh, production partner and, 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 and producer and DP and editor Henry McComas that, uh, you know, is really the driving force with me to, you know, to put what we put on the screen. We made it you hearken back to those times when you sat in a movie theater with a bunch of like-minded strangers and then all experienced something together for an hour and a half. 
And, um, you know, we got that feel. So we had a little theater run and now I hope that can translate to VOD and people enjoy it. But, uh, again, that's a longer conversation when, when you get to see it and it's released and we can come back to fanboy nation and talk about it. And that way every nine year old man child can sit there and scream with 300 other people. The Wolfman's got nards. Yes, I do. I do want to do something funky because we can with technology and, mm-hmm. and try to get as many people uh, watching it together, like with myself or, or, you know, we'll have Ryan or Ashley jump in there and, you know, have like a live, you know, like a live stream, everybody press play at the same time. And um, I don't want to give it away, but there's a certain point in the movie where there's a giant, you know, there's more than, you know, we get giant crowds to say Wolfman's got Nards all together because uh, that's their anthem. That's their rally cry. You know, that's yeah. their, that's their battle yop. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's great. And, you know, maybe now we get to do that in a, you know, a 20,000 person zoom meeting. or something. <laughs> that would be amazing. But uh, before I let you go, I would be remiss in not mentioning Brett who played Horace in, in monster squad. Yeah. Um, you know, we got to pay him his tribute because unfortunately he passed away in 1997 at only 22 years old. Um, any memories you'd like to share about him and, you know, what he would think of the resurgence, not only of Monster Squad, but, you know, the the VOD market with uh, the, the sci-fi and the, and the horror stuff that's going on right now and, you know, some of the camp that's actually done really well. You know, it's obviously it's, it's nothing more than uh, the only word is tragic. Right. You know, that that's the only word that sums up, uh, you know, all of the feelings and emotions or adjectives that you could possibly relate to, you know, someone dying that young um, that you that you didn't that didn't get to go into the next phase because uh, you just graduated college and he was going to grad school and he was going to law school at at, uh, at Cal and, uh, you know, circumstances came up and he ended up passing away. Um, no one really knew a lot of the story until uh, a, a, a few years ago. Uh, but yeah, you know, the, the main, the main tragedy here is not only just the loss of, you know, an, an awesome person uh, who had a huge fan base, but that awesome person didn't get to experience the resurgence and know that there are, you know, millions of people around the globe that love Horace yeah. and that's their favorite character in this movie. And that's really the tragedy besides the actual physical loss of the person, but this sort of, you know, disappointment that he didn't get to experience that and that the fans didn't get to, once it came back around and resurged, you know, myself and Ashley and Ryan Lambert and even, you know, someone like Stephen Mocked and some of the guys that, you know, all the guys that played the creatures, we would go to convince and people, people were able to meet them and interact with them. And we were able to interact with the fans. Uh, we we didn't get to do that even once with Brent, right. uh, and that's real. That's really you know unfortunate, and that's really the big loss. You know, obviously the physical loss is number one, but for him to not to be able to experience this, and for the fans to not be able to meet their favorite character, who has arguably the best line in the movie, um, which is you know the there was no other title for a, you know, for a movie, except for that uh, we came up, you know, I tried to come up with some alternates, uh, but this is the only one that really kind of um, really uh, worked out. Um, and it's sort of a little, you know, kind of side tribute to him yeah. and that character. Uh, we do get to cover um, 
in the documentary, we actually cover a section about Brent and um, we go into the story and we talk to some of his old friends and uh, most of his family's also no longer around, which is unfortunate. Um, and we get sort of the, you know, the story of how he actually passed and why, and, and, and that's even more tragic. Um, and we discovered that as we were interviewing the old family and friends that knew him and grew up with him uh, and, and who were there at the end. And, you know, so it's, it's even more, it's even more emotional and, and, and tragic when you, when you learn all about that and get to see him again and realize that this kid who brought so much uh, kind of energy, you know, naive energy, because he was a little younger than the most of us and he had worked a little bit, but this was his first big production that he had done. And it comes across so genuine of just this kid who's a part of a group and just wants to be accepted. And yeah, okay. He's the, you know, he's the stereotypical, you know, chunkier kid than the rest, but we, we don't care. Right. You know, he gets, he gets ridiculed from the outside, but inside of our group, he's just our friend for us who we affectionately called fat kid, right. but because he doesn't mind that if we call him that, but anybody else, that's a slight. And, you know, that's something. And then we, and the movie addresses that, Yeah. you know, and um, it's unfortunate that he didn't get to see the resurgence um, it's unfortunate that the fans didn't get to meet their favorite character because that's who everybody relates to. Uh, you know, look, I, I get it a little bit. You know, a lot of people come up to me and go, hey, man, when we grew up, we built the treehouse. It was in my backyard, and I was Sean. Like, I was the Sean in my group. I get that. Most people get like, hey, man, I, was, I wanted to be Rudy, but I was really – I was really a Sean. Right. Like I wanted to be Rudy, but honestly, I was Horace. <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, even my favorites, you know, come up like, uh, you know, I wanted to be, you know, a Sean, or you know, definitely want to be a Rudy, but I was nowhere cool enough. And I realized I grew up, I was really a Patrick, <laughs> I was really just the guy on the side that didn't really do much. But um, you know, to to have the resurgence and not have me a part of it, that's a giant, that's a giant void that is unfillable. And we never will. Um, and that's unfortunate. But, um, you know, I don't know who I lament more for, uh, the fans that can't meet Brent or Brent that can't meet the fans. I think it, they're two separate things. But, uh, you know, I kind of lament the fact, uh, you know, equally on both. And um, I would have loved to have him around and, and be in the documentary and, and just get his take on it. Because I guarantee you, as an adult, uh, you know, he passed away at 22. I mean, that's, that's the kid, that's a kid. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but he would have been, I think, you know, 44 or something now. Um, and that would have been, or 45. And to, to, I guarantee you, he'd be the same person. <laughs> you know, he, he'd just be kind of just like this gentle kind of intelligent kid who grew up, um, and it just ends up being part of this weird world where nostalgia and fandom comes back and showers him with all the affection that a group of fans could. And it would, it would have all gone to him. <laughs> it would have all gone to Brent <laughs> and deservedly so. Right. I mean, he's the, you know, that Horace character has the best arc in the movie uh, and everybody relates to him. You know, he's the one that gets picked on and bullied and he's the one that steps up and, and, you know, really shows that he's got, you know, some oomph right. and, um, and and that's what's tragic. Tragic. And um, I I would love to go back in time and change the circumstances of his uh, you know his last days uh, because um, I'm not getting into it too much because it's not my story to tell. We talk about it in the doc, but it, it was an avoidable situation. Right. 
And, you know, on a lighter note, we kind of wish that he shot Jason Harvey in the movie. <laughs> well, you know, Jason, you know, is always uh, he, he found a niche of playing that character and he does it very well. I've known Jason my literally my entire life. Uh, we were really good pals when we were younger, um, you know, and, and, you know, he grew up and did a lot of great shows, a lot of great movies. Uh, but that just shows that whether, uh, you know, someone can carry on a role and a, and, and a character persona that everybody relates to that wants to, uh, you know, he's, he's always kind of the, the villain, you know, he's right. always kind of the, the punk, but uh, he does it well. And that's a testament to, you know, what he can bring to the screen. <laughs> Andre, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Before I let you go, where can we find you on social media if we want to connect with you and remind everybody about Baby Frankenstein and its release? Uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, please, uh, you know, if you want to enjoy a nice little, you know, neighborhood romp on a Halloween day um, with some sci-fi slash E.T. mystique, go watch Baby Frankenstein. Uh, find it on your, you know, whatever, you know, VOD platform that you prefer. Um, personally, you can find me uh, on Twitter, uh, at Andre Gower. On Instagram, it's uh, Andre Gower Official. Uh, and then please, uh, you know, the uh, uh, requisite plug, uh, you can follow on all the socials uh, at the squad doc. Uh, there's two Ds in there, at the squad doc for updates on Wolfman's Got Nards. Uh, and then you can always follow my personal Twitter and IG for updates on that, uh, including Baby Frankenstein. But uh, enjoy it, you know, uh, support Fanboy Nation, you know, give Fanboy Nation your, you know, if, if you learned about Baby Frankenstein from here, uh, give them the shout out and the kudos because that's what filmmakers uh, need and that's what they deserve. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's fandom culture and fandom media that services that in between, uh, you know, like you guys RC that, uh, you know, gets the word out and connects the people with the content. So, uh, you know, everybody should be appreciative of both sides of it. Awesome, man. I appreciate the shout out as well. And thank you for your time talking to me about you know, all your projects, past, present, and baby Frankenstein. And knowing that when the documentary Wolfman comes, uh, the Wolfman's Got Nards comes out, we'll be talking to you again. Looking forward to it. Right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.